Amen. Good morning, church. A lot on our minds, huh? I tell you what, if you haven't gotten behind the worship today, if, if, it's, if it's taken you a little bit of time, sometimes it takes me the third song to really get where I need to be. Anybody else like that? So if that's you today and you're just getting warmed up, you're just shaking the rain off, welcome to church. Okay, we're going to have church today. We might break up and sing again, might stop in the middle and play a Kanye West video. Who knows? Jesus is king today. All right? He was king yesterday, too. He was king the day before he dropped the album. So, thank you for the reminder, Kanye. Good morning. I hope that you're drying off. I hope that you're Holy Spirit hot in here, because I am. So, let's do it together. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 4 this morning. If you want to turn in your scriptures, or if you want to look up on the screens, we'll read through a passage in just a minute. But, how many of you ever broken an expensive dish or a vase? Maybe it was a um, china or maybe it was a, a something like an heirloom type thing. Anybody broken something really expensive growing up or maybe recently? <laughs> um, I definitely inherited no graceful genes from my parents. So uh, my mom had an aunt that was a missionary to Ecuador, and at one point she gave my mom this, like, Indian lady, Ecuadorian Indian lady statue. Um, They were called the Aka Indians, if you're ever familiar with Jim Elliott and that whole story there. My mom's aunt went in after that whole thing, and she spent her entire life in Ecuador teaching those Aka Indians. But she has a statue of 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 a lady, and it was like her prized possession. I mean, it represented generations, and it represented um, her aunt, and, and it was just like her prized possession. It was in the dining room. It was on a shelf, and because I inherited no graceful genes, and uh, you know, boys will be boys and running around and things, I remember specifically the day that that, that statue, it wasn't like a statue. It was like this. It was just like a little monument thing. It just came crashing down. I mean, a million pieces. I mean, it could not have broken into more pieces than it did. There was no... There was no graceful breaking. It wasn't just like a piece here and a piece there. It was everywhere. I think it was like porcelain or something like that, um, plaster of Paris or something that just crumbles. Anyway, so that was a very, very bad, awful, no good day. But I remember she cared about this thing so much, she took a hot glue gun and literally pieced the entire thing back together. Hundreds of pieces, I'm sure. I was little, but hundreds of pieces. And she hot glued the whole thing back together, and then she moved it. See, that's because you learn, right? She moved it from the shelf in the dining room to on top of the grandfather clock. Well, too bad the grandfather clock fell, fell over as well. So there's that, and uh, I don't know if she's ever recovered the vase after the grandfather clock um, thing, but if you have ever broken something and tried to repair it with glue, you know as well as I do that it just doesn't, it, it, it never really gets as good as it was originally. You know what I mean? And that's the work of restoration. Anybody into restoring things? Maybe you restore old cars or old boats, vents, or maybe you do antiques or or furniture or woodworking and you refinish things. It's beautiful work and you put a lot of love into it and sometimes it turns out great. And sometimes on a rare occasion, Man, you just, you just do, the, you do the right process, 
And that thing that you're restoring, that thing that you're putting back together on rare occasion, and, and it might be because you're so invested in it, but you think it actually looks better now than it did before. But there's very few cases where you have a restoration scenario that's better than before. Usually, in 90% of the cases, the original is always better. The original worked, functioned, was used properly. But we have a restoration story in Daniel chapter 4. We have one of those rare occasions of, of one of those better than before stories. Better than before. So the pieced back together version of this king that we're going to talk about in a second was actually better than the original king, Nebuchadnezzar. So let's, we, we're going to read about it. And there's so much to learn here. And I just want to premise this by saying that Nebuchadnezzar actually pens Daniel chapter 4. He's the author of Daniel chapter 4. And I believe that gives, the, the Bible gives us every indication that we're actually going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. This is his conversion story. This is his, here's the message for the, the, the title for the message this morning. This is his tree stump testimony. Tree stump testimony. So let's stand and we're going to read Daniel 4, just verses 1 through 18. Daniel 4, 1 through 18. And then we'll talk through the rest of the chapter this morning. But I want you to just write down tree stump testimony. And we'll begin to look at King Nebuchadnezzar's life here. He's the divergent one today. Finally, he's caught on a little bit. He's caught on to this fire that Daniel hold, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego hold. And now... King Nebuchadnezzar himself is the restoration story. This is his testimony in Daniel chapter 4. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. This guy's a dreamer. As I lay in the bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me. Sound familiar? And that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in and I told them the dream. So he gave them a little piece of the pie here. Last time he said, I need the dream and the interpretation. This time he's like, okay, I'll give you the dream. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. I don't know why he always saves Daniel to laugh. He puts himself through a lot of heartache. Uh, he's, he, he must sh- suffer from short-term memory loss because it's always like, I don't know, who can do this? Oh yeah, there's Daniel. I don't know why it's always a last resort, but God gets the glory. So Daniel came in before me, who is named Belshazzar, and the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, oh, Belshazzar, chief of the magic- magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, Tell me the visions of my dream, and I saw, and their interpretation. And the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great, and the tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. 
Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and its food was for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived under its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said, Thus, chop down the tree, lop off his branches, strip it of its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under its from under it and the birds from his branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with the band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end of that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Let's pray. Jesus, take the word of God and make it go forth. Help us to find power within these words. Help us to find strength, gain perspective, make us new. God, I know that um, if you do not come, if you are not here, then I am not enough. Then these words that I have written are not enough. So come be the fulfillment of these words. It is your message in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Chapter 4 describes Nebuchadnezzar's tree stump testimony. You might have put a couple of things together, but Nebuchadnezzar is the tree. And we're going to spend the rest of our time today learning about the beginning. This is the beginning of the end for him. This is the story of his brokenness. He's got a lot of issues. Rebellion, right? Erecting that golden image that he saw in the previous dream and direct disobedience to God's interpretation of it. He's got a lot of issues. Pride. He's got a lot of issues. Self-absorption. Rage, right? We saw that last week. We talked about short-term memory loss. He must suffer from that as well. But if we had to do it in one word, we said week one, yeah, no, no um, compromise, Daniel 1. This is the divergence perspective here. Week two, no impossibilities. Week three, no distractions. But if we had to put it in one word, week four would have to be no arrogance. No arrogance. There's no room for arrogance in the life of a divergent because you're not living for your own agenda anymore. No arrogance. See, Nebuchadnezzar is the divergent this week. In this chapter, he catches the spirit and the essence of a divergent like Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar's tree stump testimony can be summed up in one phrase. And I want you to write this phrase down in your notes directly under tree stump testimony. This is his testimony. There is hope in humility. Everybody hear it, everybody write it, everybody ingrain it on your minds this morning that there is hope. There is hope today. There is hope for yesterday. There is hope for tomorrow. There is hope for every person of all time on the face of the earth, and it's found in humility. No matter how far you've gone, no matter how far, how badly you've messed up, no matter how great your sin, no matter how far no matter how long your past, no matter how broken your home, as long as God is on the throne, there is hope. 
And humility is the key to unlocking this hope. This is what Nebuchadnezzar learns in chapter 4. Let's talk about it. I've divided the chapter of, of chapter 4 into five parts. Five parts of chapter 4 that we're going to work through quickly, and then I've got some application points for you. But really quick, I need to ask you a question. Do you want the... So I've got these five points, these five breakouts in the chapter. Do you want the all of them that start with the letter D, or do you want the R's? Because I prepared both, and I don't know which way to go. I like the D's personally, but anybody in favor of the R's? I'll give you some R words or some D words. You, you want both? Do I hear both and? Fine. We'll go both C's, twinsies. So the first section is, chapter, is verses one through three. This is the doxology. Or if you want the R word, the resolution. This is the beginning, but it's also the end. And I want you to know that Nebuchadnezzar starts this chapter and ends the chapter the same way. He frames the entire testimony in worship. Hello? He starts the entire thing in a, in a doxology of humility. Listen to these words. He says, Hey, he's like, listen, I, I thought it was fitting that I kind of took over the pen for Daniel. I'm going to write some things down that I've been through. But first of all, I want you to know it seems good to me to write to you about this, how great are his signs. Now, I want you to save this in your mind and compare it to how he's talking later on in the chapter as he begins to tell the story. How great are his signs? How mighty are whose wonders? You see, his tune is going to be different in just a little bit. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So we have right away that, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar realizes something very important that, was just, that had gone awry just a chapter before that, no, no, Nebi, it's not, it's not you that's going to last forever. It's not your kingdom that's going to be eternal. It's his. It's the most high that reigns. So he's made a major transition here in his mind and his thinking. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. See what we talked about last week with, Will talked about it. He, the, 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 the idol, the golden image that he erected was very significant because he made the whole thing from top to bottom in gold. That was him. That was his medal of choice. But God said, only the head is gold. Because Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to fade off the scene. You're not forever. I have plans. There's going to be more kingdoms, more judgments, more cycle of sin, more cycle of all of that stuff, more cycle of destruction. There's going to be a whole redemption story, and you are not that story. You're one part. Nebuchadnezzar said, no, I'm going to make the whole thing gold because I am the beginning and the end. My kingdom will reign forever. This is my generation and the next generation and the next generation. All of it will be Babylon. I mean, we've got a, we've got, and you know this, even if you've studied world history in, in growing up, you know Nebuchadnezzar and the impact that Babylon had upon technology and art and structure and aqueducts and everything. I mean, this was like the Rome before Rome, hello. So this guy is a big deal. He has much to be proud about. He has much to think of himself lofty about. Did you know? Well, I'm getting ahead of myself, so I'll save it. So um, he chooses, he cho- note how he chooses to describe God. He's the one whose kingdom is everlasting. His dominion endures from gen- generation to generation. Something has shifted. Something has shifted from a chapter ago where we read about how he erected a personal pillar unto himself. 
He was literally creating an idol after his image to bow down to it. And now he's taking over. He's saying, all right, <laughs> let me summarize a whole, a whole testimony here in one chapter. It's my tree stump testimony. And God gets all the glory. That's how he starts. Now, what's the dream? What's the story? How did this happen? How did he go from self-absorbed, prideful, arrogant, narcissistic, Nebuchadnezzar to this man who's, who's deflecting all the glory and the praise back to God, just deflecting it, just a mirror, just giving it all back. So the dream, the dream. Surprise, the dream is about Nebuchadnezzar again because God knows how to speak to this man. He's like, okay, I, I need to get a word. I need to get a message to Nebuchadnezzar. Let's just, let's, let's make up an illustration about himself. He loves himself. I think he'll get it. I think he'll really enjoy it. So the dream is about him. And really, it's not that much different from the first dream. The first dream was about, a, about the statue and how the statue crumbles. It falls. It's shattered. The second dream, a tree. The tree is, the tree is chopped down. The animals are scattered. So it's the exact same concept, only this time he gets it. And the Lord makes sure that he gets it because no man will take the place of God. God is a jealous God. And Nebuchadnezzar was flirting on the precipice of what Lucifer did when he was the archangel in heaven. You do realize that he was the worship leader of heaven. And he said, I will be like God. And God humbled him, threw him out, him and a third of the angels. So, There's a huge tree. It's in the middle of the earth. It's a vibrant. It's a growing. It's a fruitful tree. It's, it's sheltered. This is the Babylonian kingdom. This is what Nebuchadnezzar has built up. And now a watcher, which I believe is probably an angel, and a watcher or an angel is commanded to come down, cut down the tree, cut off the branches, strip the leaves, scatter the fruit. This is the total decimation of the Babylonian empire. This is the destruction of his kingdom. This is irreparable damage. But the watcher is commanded by the Most High to what? Leave the stump in the ground. Leave it chained up, leave it tied up, and that tree stump uh, pictures the very person of Nebuchadnezzar. You see? It's, this is King Nebuchadnezzar himself. He's chained up. He's literally, the Bible goes on to say, we'll get it in a second, but he's, he's literally that tree stump. He's, changed, he's chained up as an animal, as a beast, as an ox. So, uh, the stump, this, this Nebuchadnezzar person will literally lose his mind. He's given the mind of an animal. He eats and acts like an animal for seven seasons or seven years, possibly. There's some disparagement there, but I probably believe it's seven seasons. So like four seasons in a year, almost two years that he lives and acts like an animal outside, no shelter. Some people believe that the Bible refers to seven as seven years. It just says seven periods of time, okay? But that's not important. Don't get hung up on that. It's Anyway, he's out in the rain and the cold for a long period of time. So he calls in Daniel, verses 19 through 27. Oh, guys, I forgot to give you the second word. So verses 1 through 3 is the doxology or the resolution. Verses 4 through 18 is the dream. Or if you want the R word, this is the reason, now we're, we're, now we're at 19 through 27. 19 through 27 is, is Daniel's interpretation. So I like to call it the decree 
Or if you want the R word, this is the realization. This is the oh crap moment. When Daniel says, dude, it's you again. I hate to break it to you. It's about you. I think Nebuchadnezzar could almost start interpreting these, these dreams for himself. It's always about him. And this is interesting because Daniel, yes, he's the only one who could interpret the dream. He calls the enchanters and the musicians, the magicians, not too much disparity there, but I'm just kidding, <laughs> just kidding, I love musicians. Um, uh, but he's the only one who could interpret the dream, and he doesn't want to. So there is a little bit, I want you to see this, there is a little bit of divergent Daniel here, because he had every opportunity to say, I could, uh, I, God, this one's hard. I don't like the way this one plays out. Nebuchadnezzar is a good place. The kingdom's growing. I mean, look at my position here in the kingdom. I'm doing pretty good. I'm second in command. Again, so many parallels between Joseph and Daniel, right? So Daniel's second in command. He's, he's the chief of, of the affairs. He's like the king's number one counselor. And he's got a lot to lose here. You know, this could go very badly for him if he says, Nebuchadnezzar, if he doesn't hold back and he chooses to tell Nebuchadnezzar exactly what the dream is about and, and really lays into him again, he could lose his job, he could lose his position, he could, he could be put to death. I mean, he saw what happened to his three amigos there a chapter ago. What if Nebuchadnezzar did something like that to him? These are not, this is not a kind interpretation here. There's nothing sugar-coated about it. I mean, the tree goes down, it goes down hard, and nothing is left except a stump. So Daniel doesn't want to tell him the dream. It says, we'll read just verse 19 together. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while. See, his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. So Daniel is trying to just kind of lay it on him easy, but he knows, listen, if I tell the king this, this, this is a make or break moment. So for, for, for Daniel, the one word is no excuses here. No excuses. He's got, he could choose from a myriad of excuses as to why not to tell Nebuchadnezzar, oh, this is probably just for somebody else. This is going to be for those who hate. This is going to be for your enemies. No, it's, it's for you. It's about you. It's for you. And it doesn't look good. So we're going to skip here because we've already interpreted the dream this morning. So we're going to skip to verse 27. Daniel chapter 4, verse 27. Daniel's interpreted the dream. He says, it's about you. Your kingdom's going. Now, therefore, verse 27, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Right? Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. There could be a little season of glimmer of hope here if you just put away your evil practices, put away your sin, show mercy to the oppressed. Daniel gives him an out. Daniel said, the tree's you. You've become great. You've become wonderful, but you've become too prideful. You need to be straightened up. You need to do right or you're going to be cut down. You'll be driven from men. You'll live like an animal completely outdoors for seven seasons. He pleads with the king to turn from sin. He pleads with the king to show mercy. Although 
Daniel knows that he's not in control of what happens. Daniel tries to give the king an alternative. If you would just seek God, if you would just pursue him, there could be a lengthening. There could be more season of prosperity here. But what does the king do? Verse 28. Verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. All of it. Verse 29. At the end of 12 months. So we have a year goes by here. A year goes by. So I think there is a period of possibly King Nebuchadnezzar Uh, the Lord's grace and mercy upon King Nebuchadnezzar. I don't think that Daniel's words went unheeded. Unfortunately, there was just too, pride and arrogance had so much of a foothold in this king's heart that it only lasted for a year. Yeah, his, his kingdom was lengthened. His prosperity days were lengthened, but only for 12 months because then pride has a way of sneaking back up. And here we are, verse 30 or verse 29, and at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon? Just picture this in a great big booming voice here. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Dude, he's got it bad. He's got it. He's got it very badly. Compare that with what he said in verse 3. Is, is this even the same guy? This is my Babylon. I've built by my mighty power, not just power, but mighty power, as a royal residence for the glory. Okay, glory belongs to no man. That's a Bible verse. Of my majesty. Verse 3 says, How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is everlasting. His dominion endures. Wow. We've got the tale of two Nebuchadnezzars here. Once again, he doesn't heed Daniel's instruction. He rebels against the interpretation. A whole year goes by. He's lifted up in pride so much so that he forgets God. And he's walking along the palace. He's walking along the roof. And make no mistake, Babylon was beautiful. Don't forget Babylon was one of the seven wonders of the world. Do you remember studying that? The hanging gardens of Babylon. Hopefully they were in your history books growing up. I mean, this is no joke. This was one of the seven wonders of the world. He had every, I don't want to say right, but he had every opportunity to step out and claim the glory. He had built an a worldwide empire that covered the earth. This tree, the Bible said, was visible from the entire parts of the earth. That's representative of the fact of how big the Babylonian empire was. It's, it's, um, some of the historians say that in, the, in, a, in a British museum, there are six columns of writing that were recovered from Babylon, which describe the huge building projects of Nebuchadnezzar and his zeal to enlarge and beautify the city. Now catch this. They've recovered some bricks. They've recovered and excavated some of the old bricks found of Babylon, and they, every single one of the bricks says this. They're all stamped with this. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, exalted firstborn son of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Are you kidding? Can you imagine if I put on every two by four in my house, Jim, oh, great one of 140 Fletcher Lane, Lord of 11 acres. You know, that's just like, 
dude, this guy had it bad. Every brick in his palace, every brick of every structure had a stamp with his name on it saying, I am the exalted one. This guy has it bad. You understand that the position he's in is just really scary. He's, he, he really believes this stuff about himself. But we all know it. Pride goes before what? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Yeah. So what happens? Let's read verse 31. While the words were still in his mouth. So there's a good chance he didn't even get it all out. There fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, a grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. He was an animal. He was turned into an animal for seven seasons. When your only vision is a vision of yourself, God has a way of bringing you down. Nebuchadnezzar, you know, in those words of verse 31, when he's saying that, well, verse 30, without even knowing it, he was giving his own eulogy. When he spoke about his greatness, he was literally giving his own funeral sermon. No sooner had the words left his mouth than God spoke directly to him. His hair grew wild, wet with the dew, referring to the fact there was no shelter. He didn't even have, he didn't even have a place to go. The trees chopped down. There's no shelter. His nails were grew out like bird's claws. He lost his mind. All pride was gone. All arrogance was vacant. I mean, what are you going to say? What are you going to have to talk about? Good chance he couldn't even talk. The Bible says that God gave him the mind of an animal for seven seasons, whether that means two years or seven years. It doesn't really matter. He is brought low. I mean, there's not even, there's not even a mental disorder strong enough to describe what Nebuchadnezzar is going through here. This is not anxiety. This is not depression. This is not bipolar. This is not schizophrenia. God gave him the mind of an animal. He was purely running off instinct here. Just a shell of the man in a matter of moments, the kingdom was taken from him. Wow. And I don't know who ran, probably Daniel. Daniel or his wife, Nebuchadnezzar's wife could have ruled. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us who reigned in his stead. But it's not the end of the story. So we've got... Uh, verses 28 through 33, that was the doom. The R word is ruins. The doom or the ruins. But thank God for the stump because God is a God of restoration. So listen to this. Verses, the, end of the, the end of the chapter, verses 34 through 37, this is the deliverance. The R word is restoration. And this is where it really gets real, folks. This is where we can take some application away. 
Verse 34, let's read it together. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever. The first step he took was to take his eyes off himself and look up to God. He was truly humbled. How do we know that? He finally got his eyes off of himself. The Bible says that his very first action here the very first time that God allowed him to make a cognitive decision for himself, he chose to lift his eyes to heaven. He was truly humble. This is a conversion story. This is a testimony of Nebuchadnezzar here. He lifted his eyes to heaven. His reason, no, don't miss this. Nebuchadnezzar could only see the truth about himself when he first saw the truth about God. And that is true for every single person sitting here. If you're lost, if you're wayward, if, if you think you've gone too far, too messed up, or your past is too long, or your shame is too great, or your family is too broken, you will never climb out of that pit. You will never fully realize what you look like until you realize what God looks like. You have to understand who God is to understand who you are. Because if we just have this comparison game going on, if I'm just he over here against John or against Vince, then or against this person or that person, I can come up with all kinds of reasons why I might be doing a little better or a little worse. But this is the essence of salvation. Salvation only happens when you realize who you are in relation to who God is that we are fallen, that we are broken, that we are without help, that we are lost in our sins, that we are blinded in our sins, that we, have, we are literally dead, Ephesians 2, 5. We are dead in our trespasses and iniquities. I don't know, I don't, it's probably not verse 5, it's somewhere in there. But we are dead. A dead man can do nothing for himself. And if you're, if you're sitting here under the sound of God's word this morning and you're struggling or you're broken or you're lost and you're trying to discover yourself or maybe you're on the other end of that spectrum and you think too highly of yourself, Romans chapter 12, then you ought to think. I encourage you this morning, look at God. Get your eyes off yourself and look at God. Realize who he is. Study who he is. Worship who he is. There is no better, there is no better definition that you can come up to discover who you are than by looking at God. Because you are in stark contrast, my friends. He is holy, he is just, he is perfect, he is omnipotent, he is omniscient, and his glory belongs to no man. So none of those adjectives belong to us. You only see the truth about yourself when you discover the truth about God. Have you been lying? Have you been lying about yourself? Have you been lying about yourself? Are you de- have you deceived yourself this morning? Nebuchadnezzar committed idolatry, and God will always take the idol down. Same thing happened at the Tower of Babel. They thought they could be God. They thought they could reach God. They thought they could be God. God took it down, confused the languages. Same thing happened to Lucifer. We referenced it earlier. Anytime any kingdom or king or person, individual, elevates themselves to the point of of self-deception where they think they can be like God, reach God, or act like God, there will always be a humbling. I 
I believe that he truly repents by acknowledging his weakness compared to God's eternal nature. He lifts his eyes to heaven. By the way, hmm, notice he worships at his weakest. His, he, he lifts his eyes and blessed the Most High before he was even healed or restored. Did you catch that? At the end of the day, Zayd Nebuchadnezzar, is he healed yet? Is he restored? Is he, is he living outside like an animal at this point in verse 34? Yes, he is. He's still broken. He's still a mess. He, he's still that, that image of, of an ox with the long hair and the nails and, 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 the, and the just wild mannerisms. And he, he, he lifts his eyes. He's, he's humbled and he worships before he's restored. He worships at his weakest point. I think that's significant. That, that to me is the reason this is a conversion here is that he didn't wait till he was restored to worship. He didn't wait till he was back in the palace to worship. He worshiped in the field. He worshiped while he was wet and mangy and crazy, like a wild animal. He worshiped. And then he was restored. And notice his words. For his dominion is everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to duration. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He knows that better than anyone. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is God and we are man. If that's what you take away from this sermon, is just an elevated reverence for God and a humbleness for yourself, the word of God will have done its job. God is God and we are not. In every circumstance, in every decision, in every moment of your life, God is God and you are not. You have no control. You have no say. The return of reason results in worship. Verse 34 through 37. God restores God restores. Let's read the very last part of this chapter and we'll be done at the same time. My reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, wait a minute, and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom. And wait a minute, and still more greatness was added to me. Wow, what a restoration. This is a better than before restoration. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What a story. What a turnaround. What an example of the fact that there is hope in humility. God restores. And this is it. No one is too far gone. If God can take Nebuchadnezzar, who he turned into an animal, and restored him as king of Babylon and gave him even more greatness, nobody is too far gone. If you are still alive and God is still on his throne, there is still hope. But humility is the way into that hope. Humility is the key. Humble yourselves before God. No one is too far gone. Nebuchadnezzar proves that. He's greater in the end than he was at the beginning. So I have two questions for you. Are you the tree or are you the stump? 
King Nebuchadnezzar's name literally means may Nebo protect the crown. This was the, this was the Assyrio-Babylonian king of writing, wisdom, knowledge, and agriculture. So he's named after this king that should have, this God, excuse me, that should have had the ability to save him. I mean, he's pictured in this dream as a tree. I don't think that's an accident that this God that he's named after is the God of agriculture. Couldn't he have sustained the tree? Could he have not protected Nebuchadnezzar? He's the God of all wisdom and writing. It just shows that, you know, this God was himself. It just shows that Nebuchadnezzar's God was himself. The, the God he was trusting in supposedly had all the answers. His identity was wrapped in and how he saw himself. Are you the tree? Really quick, how do we keep ourselves from being lifted up in pride? Deflect the attention, drown out the applause, destroy the idols. Deflect the attention. Drown out the applause, destroy the idols. This is the surrender cycle, really quick. We're not going to get into it, but if you want to write it down, this is the surrender cycle that is literally laid out for us in Daniel chapter 4. Humility, repentance, worship. Humility, repentance, worship. This is the surrender. If you want to stay in a, in a constant state of surrender to the Lord, if you want to keep yourself from being lifted up in pride, these are good things for us all to remember. Humility, repentance, worship. That will keep your eyes on God and off of yourself. If your look at what God has done for me ever turns into look at what I have done for myself, God will bring you down. God will bring you down. The Bible says so. Proverbs 16, 18. It'll be up here, I believe. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. James 4, 6 says this, God, resist the proud. Resist the proud. It's like two magnets against each other. It's just resistance. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Are you the tree? Second question, are you the stump? My most favorite phrase in this entire chapter is found here in Daniel chapter 4, verse 15. When God says to the watcher, the angel, the one that was supposed to come and take Nebuchadnezzar down, God says to this angel, but leave the stump. Leave the stump, leave its roots in the ground, and chain it down. You realize this morning that that is the most merciful thing God could do? When he takes you down, he leaves a stump, a dead old stump, but let me tell you something this morning. If, if God had allowed Nebuchadnezzar to take himself down, there would have been no recovery. There would have been no stump. And if God had allowed the world, if God had allowed his own kingdom to take him down, there would have been no stump. There would have been no possibility of hope. There would have been no restoration. God took him down, and that is a merciful God. God left a stump in the ground, and that is a merciful God. Amen? I'm so glad that my testimony leaves room for hope that when God took me down, when God lopped off my branches, when God humbled me, he left a stump. And when there is a stump, there is hope. When there is a stump and there is humility, there is hope this morning. Nobody 
is too far gone. How do I know that? Because Jesus Christ, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, look at this verse. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who is Jesse? David's father, the, literally the lineage of Christ. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jesus Christ is proof that if there is a stump, there is hope. Jesus Christ was, was, the, was the shoot from the stump of David. Let me show you Job chapter 14. Job chapter 14, verse 7. I want you to write this verse down in your notes because this is so powerful. For there is hope for a tree. If it be cut down, that it will sprout again and its shoots will not cease. Amen? Wow. There is hope and humility. I've got a little graphic here, actually, of a tree stump with a little shoot coming out of it. There is hope and humility, folks. That's the message for today. There's hope and humility. There's hope and humility. There's hope. While there is breath this morning, there is hope. If God is not, wait a minute, how do they say it at New Spring? If, 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 you're, not, if you're not dead, God's not done. I like that. I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll take that to the bank all day, every day. If you're not dead, God is not done. There is hope. I'm so grateful for a God who will humble me on my behalf. That way that I'm not taking myself down, that the, because this world could take me down in a split second, guys. If everybody in the whole world knew who Jim really was, if Jim let Jim take control of who Jim really was, then I would be cut down. This, this, whole, this whole thing would be over. But praise God that God humbles and God leaves a stump and there is hope. While there is humility, there is hope. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for Kanye West, who we didn't get to. We'll get to him in the second service. Amen. But we thank you for the beautiful picture of a modern-day Nebuchadnezzar. He even refers to himself in the own interview. I was, I was the King Nebuchadnezzar of Daniel chapter 4, and God said, look at what I will do. We thank you, God that you are the one who humbles us, that you are the one who cuts us down, who lops off our branches. And I pray over everyone here this morning as they're pondering that question, am I the tree or am I the stump? And if we'll go ahead and have Mr. Ray Gary go to the back there. Um, we, we have somebody available for you to pray with. It's, an, it's a new team. It's the prayer team. And I would encourage you, if you're struggling with something this morning, if this weighed heavy on your heart, maybe you identified as the tree, maybe you identified with a stump, maybe you think you're too far gone, that there is no hope, there is hope. While there is humility, there is hope. What will be your tree stump testimony this morning? Some of us are the tree. Some of us need to be humbled down. Some of us need to be cut down this morning. We think too highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We think it's all about us. We think the world revolves around us, that we are the epicenter of our lives. Wake up! If Daniel were here today, if King Nebuchadnezzar could tell you something, he's trying to tell you with what he pinned in Daniel chapter 4. He's saying, wake up! You need to shift your focus from yourself. Lift your eyes to heaven. Let heaven break off those chains. I'm going to tell you something this morning. If, there, if, if your life, if you identify as the stump this morning and your life is shattered in pieces, if you would just gather some of those pieces, you don't even have to grab all of it. 
Just grab what you can. Lift up, scoop up what you can of your life this morning if it's in shambles. And lift it up to the only one who can restore this morning, Jesus. He's the only one who can restore. He's the only one who can give you a better than before type of restoration. He can put those pieces back together. He is the ultimate restorer of of rebirth, of regrowth. If you'll give your life to him, if you'll surrender your life to him, give him those pieces. Oh, what he could do with you. It would be a better than before story. Better than before better than the original. God, I pray it for myself. I pray it for this church and everyone here this morning. It's in your name that we pray.